Please be seated. The title of the message this morning is The Opposition to Jesus Begins. And certainly if you've been with us in the study of John chapter 5, you know where we're going. There has been a miracle performed in chapter 5. Jesus arrived in Jerusalem from Galilee, and he healed a man who had been sick 38 years. 38 years this man had been lame at a minimum. And we notice that it was, if you look at verse 9, it was the Sabbath day. It almost says that in passing. It was the Sabbath day in the middle, or at the end of verse 9. So the Lord Jesus Christ not only healed this man who had been sick 38 years, but he did it on the Sabbath day. And let me remind you of something right here. Even though this was 38 years, this was not life-threatening. You say, what are you talking about? He's had it for 38 years. The Lord could have waited till tomorrow to heal him. He could have waited for another week. It would not have affected this man. It is very possible to be lame and sick and so forth, as some of our own congregation know, for many years, and have it not be life-threatening. But the Lord Jesus Christ specifically and deliberately healed on the Sabbath. Now, it's interesting because the reaction of the Jews, who we have said was probably the religious leaders from our text, listen, was all negative. All of it. It's all it was. There was no appreciation for the man being healed. None. There was no concern for the miracle itself. None. Listen. There was no excitement Catch this, you're going to hear it ten times this morning. There was no excitement for what God was doing. None. They were simply upset. And there was no apparent reason for it. They were upset because of an apparent violation, and I say apparent purposely, apparent violation of the Sabbath. And their anger is first directed at the man. Look at verse 10 before we get there to verse 15 again. Because they attack him first, it says, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. And we explained that to you last week. So first of all, their anger goes to him. Who? The man who's healed. No appreciation for what's going on. But now we find, beginning in verses 15 and 16, that that is going to shift. The animosity, the anger, the bitterness will shift from the man who had been healed to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Amazing. First, it's going to do that because of the healing on the Sabbath, which is part of your outline, and that's verses 15 and 16, so let me read them again. And a man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Let me stop there. Here we see the action of the man. Simply, he goes to the leaders 
and he lets them know that Jesus was the one who had healed him because of why. Well, there's been all kinds of thoughts on why he did this. Maybe it's simply in response to verse 12 because in verse 12 it says, who's the man that did this? And he didn't know who it was. It may be nothing more than that. He's simply responding to them. It may be that in order to turn the attention of the anger from the people or the leaders toward him, he wanted it to turn toward Jesus. I don't know. It's possible. We don't know that. It could have been, as some have suggested, especially based on verse 14, since Jesus challenged him, that it was deliberate and that the man wanted to get the Lord Jesus Christ in trouble and, and so forth, knowing that the Jews were upset, so he deliberately did that. It could have been because of the stupidity of the man. To be very blunt about it, he just had it done and didn't realize and that they would persecute the Lord Jesus Christ, so he just went to them and said it. Or it could have been just because of the sovereign will of God, folks, that this man was led by God. It does not matter. And I purposely said those things. You know why? And hold on to your hats. There are so many things that we end up dealing with, and it doesn't matter. It didn't matter what he did. The scriptures don't tell us. He simply reported it. Now the stage is set. Now the shift is going to be made, and we pick it up in verse 16. And in verse 16, it says, For this reason, why the man had gone, and he reported it for whatever reason. Scriptures don't reveal it. We'll leave it there. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath day. Interesting. Why? If you've been with us through the study of the gospel according to John, you will note with me that to this point, there has been curiosity about Jesus. For example, Nicodemus. He was curious. A lot of things were going on, so he came to him by night, wanted to know what was happening. There has even been surprise regarding the ministry of Jesus. He cleansed the temple, and everybody was kind of in shock. He went to the wedding feast of Cana, turned the water into wine that we've already studied, and people were surprised. However, the ministry of Jesus has begun to expand. Remember chapter 4? Go back there for a second. Verse 1, where it says, Now Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. And then in verse 41, we saw in chapter 4 that many more had believed because of his word. Then we came to verse 53 of chapter 4. So the father knew that it was at that hour that Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed in his whole household. So what had happened is what started off as curiosity, what started off as kind of surprise, now is changing because Jesus is beginning to build a following. People are now attracted to the Lord Jesus Christ. His ministry is being noticed his miracles are being unavoidable. You can't avoid them. It's so obvious. And you know what else? Rabbinical laws are being challenged. Rabbinical laws are being challenged. So the religious leaders, because of this now, will now turn to an active opposition, not passive anymore, active opposition, and begin to persecute the Lord Jesus Christ. I will say this in regards to verse 16 for just a second. The actions are continuous. Both verbs that are used here. 
or in the imperfect tense. Jesus will continue to what? Heal and do good on the Sabbath. The responsive reading that you had this morning, they always have a purpose behind them. But in case you didn't notice, it was the Sabbath, the Sabbath, the Sabbath, the Sabbath. The Lord Jesus Christ continuously and purposely will heal and do good on the Sabbath. And the leaders will continue to persecute. Another term, they will continue to pursue. They will continue to follow after. They will continue, continue literally to press hard toward the Lord Jesus Christ. They are now set on a mission. And they will not give it up. It was a major issue to the Jewish leaders. And Jesus was going to continue to do his work on the Sabbath day. Now let me spend a few minutes on the Sabbath. I briefly made some comments last week. But let's take nothing for granted. Let me say these things. First of all, when we talk about the Sabbath day, we're talking about the seventh day of the week. We are talking about Saturday. We are not talking about Sunday. I take nothing for granted. Some think that we're talking like this is the Sabbath day. This isn't the Sabbath day at all. It was the seventh day of the week. It was Saturday. The actual law itself goes back to Genesis chapter 2. I won't go back that far. But when the Lord created the world in six days and then the seventh, he rested and so forth. And we can find its roots there because scripture refers to it back there. But the institution, would you just keep your finger here, goes back to Exodus 20. Would you turn there with me, please? Exodus chapter 20. I want you to see something. Because I'll make some comments on this a little bit later. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, recognize this? I would say the majority of you should. Let me read it first, 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall, do, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. Then it refers back to the Genesis account. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, by the way, that tells you a little bit about creation, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That is known, in case you don't realize it or have forgotten, as the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment was to observe the Sabbath. Its violation, I want you to understand this. Go to chapter 35 of Exodus for just a second. Chapter 35. Verse 2, to save time, you read the beginning of the verse on your own. It dealt with the Sabbath. I want you to catch the end of it. Whosoever does any work on it shall be what? Put to death. The penalty for violation of the Sabbath was the death penalty. Fourth commandment, don't observe it, you die. Plain and simple. How's that? We wouldn't have many living people if we had to live by the commandments that people are trying to so keep today. What is the concept behind it? I mentioned it last week. The idea behind the Sabbath day and not working was that he was dealing with normal work. That's what the law of God. We know that by comparing scripture, and I'm not going to spend the whole message on the Sabbath. But if we were to compare it with the passages, it dealt with normal work, such as what? 
commerce, business, things you do for pay, things you do for wages, things you do to survive back in that culture. That's what it was dealing with. It was dealing with, when it came to the seventh day, you were not to be involved in your everyday activity like you normally would be involved in. And to give you some principles, if you want them for your notes, as I pondered this and studied it, and you look at other passages of Scripture, it certainly points out God's value for a couple of important things that I'll make just a brief comment on for today. God showed his value for the need for men to have rest. God showed his value for spiritual reflection because they were to take a day in which they reflected on the Lord. God showed his value for spiritual worship collectively. What are you talking about? Both personal and corporate worship was to happen, and that did not change in the New Testament, by the way. Because in the Sabbath day was when you find Jesus teaching in the temple. Why? Because they gathered there for that. I will tell you this, and this really is not the bulk of what I want to deal with today. We have violated those values that God has laid down in so many ways. In the 21st century, folks, People are not concerned about a day of rest at all. It's just ongoing work and money. That's where we're living. People have come up with a long laundry list of excuses why not to have corporate worship. And technology is adding to it. A lot of professing Christians, and I say that, are talking about their spiritual walk with God and are spending very little time alone with God. It's theology. It's not reality. We are living in a day that is fastly moving towards secularism and agnosticism and ultimately atheism. I mentioned it in brief. You'll hear more in the future. But just look at the society. You that are older, as old as me are older, there was a day in which in this country, it didn't matter what religion you were, the children and the adults went to corporate worship. It didn't matter what they believed. Today you're hard-pressed to find people that you work with that even go to church anymore. And listen, you're hard-pressed to find many believers who consistently go to church because they've got all their excuses. I want you to know that if Jesus is breaking the Sabbath, by the way, he's a sinner, worthy of death, and cannot be your savior. And obviously, he didn't break the Sabbath, but in their mind, he was. The Sabbath was not for God, it was for man. We just read that. And you already read in your responsive reading that Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. We forget that even in our society, and I'm not talking about the Sabbath day, but we forget who he is. 
Let me read to you Mark chapter 2. You can mark it down if you're taking notes. You don't have to turn there. You'll hear it. Mark chapter 2 in verses 27 and 28 very simply says this. I referred to it last week. Listen. And he was saying to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Why? Because of rest, because of time alone with the Lord. I just gave you some of it. Consequently, the Son of Man, that is referring to Jesus Christ, is Lord even of the Sabbath. He's still Lord. He's still over it. And he's the one they're accusing of breaking it. Acts of mercy, according to Matthew chapter 12, according to what you just read about goodness, acts of mercy was never a restriction of the Sabbath day. Never. But they had made it so. Rabbinical law had added 39 acts that were forbidden on the Sabbath. The word of God didn't say that. But man had added 39 laws to it. And before we get too pious, how many of us, not just the leadership, how many of us in this room have certain laws that if people don't meet, which are not recorded in scripture, they're out of fellowship. I'm the one in fellowship. Rabbinical laws. And it included carrying anything on the Sabbath. And I will tell you this, just so you have it, for those taking notes again, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 21. I'm not going to turn there. Because in Jeremiah 17, 21, it said, don't carry anything. So the rabbinical law added that to their list. What they didn't look was at the context of Jeremiah. Because again, in the context of Jeremiah chapter 17, he was saying those who were doing commerce were not to carry their goods to the market. They were not to carry their goods from the market. They couldn't carry on the Sabbath in relationship to the ordinary business of the day. It got abused. The scriptures, scriptures get twisted to what the people wanted it to be. So all in all, when you come down to this incident in Matthew, uh, John chapter 5 and verse 17, this incident was not a violation of the law at all. Jesus Christ was the one who created it. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He's doing good. He's not violating anything. The only violation that you find here was in the rules that had been set up by the Pharisees. And if that isn't bad enough, it gets worse. So they start to persecute him because he's violating their thinking. And from there, the persecution just increases because it moves from there to verses 17 and 18. And now he claims that God's his father, and now the persecution is really going to begin. And it's going to continue right through the book, by the way. Look at verses 17 and 18. But before I read them, let me ask you this. Who do you think Jesus is? You say, what do you mean? A good teacher? A moral man? A good leader? Someone who was born at Christmas time, who came and just made life easy for me? A miracle worker who can do miracles if I want it? Where does your line get drawn with Jesus? To those who don't know Christ, many of them it gets drawn right on this point, the deity. I can't accept that he's, he's God. Hold on. Where is the line drawn for believers? Well, he's my savior. Well, yeah, he's Lord, but leave me alone. Let me run my life. 
That's where the line is with Christ. Where is it? Jesus Christ made very clear his claim in verse 17. There are those who, by the way, would say that Jesus Christ never, be, never claimed to be God. Anyone that says that to you, just tell them you don't know your Bible. It says it several places, by the way, but here's one of them. He answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Say, I don't see it. When he referred to my father, this is not like saying that we would say that God is the father of creation. Listen, this is different. We would say that God's my father. He's the father of creation. It's true. That's not what Jesus was saying. That he's also not saying, by the way, in this claim here, that he's my father by salvation. Because any believer that is here today certainly has that authority to turn around and say, I've trusted in Christ. God is my father. He is by salvation. What Jesus Christ clearly was saying in this passage in verse 16, 17 was this. Jesus is saying, God is my own father. I and he are in the same boat. He was clearly claiming deity. In their assessment, watch this, verse 18, they got it. We might not get it today. Some people might say, that's the line, I can't take the deity. They knew exactly what he was saying. So whatever you think he might have been saying in verse 17, look at verse 18. They understood that he was claiming deity. They knew clearly that he was claiming equality with God. It says that at the end of the verse. Turn to chapter 10, same book, John. You don't think they, they got this? Turn to chapter 10. Look at verses 30 to 36 quickly. Uh, 30 to 33, then I'll look at 36. I and the Father are one. I could stop there, and then people will debate the, the Greek with you and so forth. It's pretty straightforward there. Verse 31, the Jews took up stones again to stone them. Jesus answered them, I showed you many works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? They got it. Why? Look at verse 33. The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They got it. They got it. Look at verse 36. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? You see, he was claiming that he and the Father were one in this claim. Look at chapter 19, same book. I'm not even going outside of the book. Chapter 19, verse 7. See what the Jews say again? Now you're getting to the crucifixion. And you get to verse 7, and the Jews answered him, we have a law, we have a law, interesting, and by that law he ought to die. Why? Because he himself, or he made himself out to be, what? The son of God. And they clearly saw that as equality with God. We might not see it. They saw it. And so their persecution is going to increase. And I want you to understand something else back in John chapter 5, verse 18 and 17. He was not saying that I am equal with God as far as I'm another God in addition to him. That's not what he meant by it either. Nor is he saying that I am in competition with God, as some would say, some religions. 
he is clearly saying that he is co-equal with the Father, that God was his own Father, and he and God the Father were the one true God. And the Jews knew it. I want you to notice something else back in John chapter 5. Jesus does not correct them. Did you notice that? Their assessment was right. You see, it's interesting. We come back to this. And here's where I really want to wind it up, wind up the message before communion. Jesus performed miracles in our text. He claimed to be God. He's claimed to be the Savior of the world. He's been claimed to be the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. And all that did was get them upset. And all that did was get them to persecute him more. It didn't draw them to him. It resulted in more persecution. The more he stood for the truth of the word of God, the more persecution he got. The more he claimed who he was, the more upset the people got. Why? Here it is again. Because they failed to see what God was doing. All they saw a miracle, but they didn't see the hand of God. All they saw things going on, they heard things with their ears, but they didn't see what God was doing. Why? They were simply upset and angry because of something that didn't satisfy them. They had tunnel vision. They were looking out for their own interests. They weren't looking out for what God was doing at all. They were the religious leaders. They would have been the first one in the back rooms to tell you how godly they were. They would have been the first ones to tell you all of their theology. And they couldn't see two feet in front of them as to what God was doing. If you're here today and don't know Christ, oh, you might have read a lot of stories about Christ. You might have read your Bible. But where does Jesus fit into your theology? Where does he fit into your life? You say, I can't accept Jesus. He doesn't fit into my religion. I can't accept Jesus as being the Savior because certainly man has to do something by way of good works to get to heaven. You say, I can accept Jesus as being a good religious man, but I can't accept him as being God, the creator of the universe. Then you can't see two feet in front of you because he is who he claimed. And until you come to the place that you repent as a sinner, and you are, and realize you can't save yourself, no religion can save yourself, you are doomed and damned to an eternity in hell. You have to come to the place that you accept Jesus Christ on his terms. You accept who he is. You accept what he did and what he is doing even today. And you need to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be saved. Because there is salvation in no one else. And you say, preach it, brother. Okay, believers. Then comes us. And I'm going to be wide open. Then comes the believers. Do you see 
what God is doing? Don't answer that out loud. Are you alert enough every day to see what God is doing? Am I? Or are we just filled with complaints? Are we just filled with anger? Are we just filled with bitterness? While claiming we belong to Christ. While doing things in the name of Christ. Want me to be blunt? Okay, leaders, and I'm in there. Are our expectations wrong? Can we be like the Pharisees that become legalistic and add to the scriptures things that are not there? Because we won't be comfortable if we step outside of that? It's happening all the time. Can we have wrong expectations of what God wants rather than spending the time to find out exactly what he did say and doing only what he does say to do? It can be very easy as a leader, even saved, to get into the wrong expectations, to get into the wrong rules, to get into judging other believers, and we have no right to be doing that. How about all of us as believers? Don't go there, Pastor Dan. Do we see what God is doing? Do we have unrealistic demands of everybody else when we don't keep what we expect everybody else to be doing, especially the leadership? I mean, they're preaching it. How can they preach it and not do it? Are you doing it? Do we sometimes, this is just to challenge all of our thinking, Christianity is filled with this stuff today. Are you caught up so much in your own theological thinking that you can't see what God is doing? Say, what are you talking about? It's very possible to be in corners talking about the theology of the day and what you feel is the only one right doctrine to be standing up for, and you don't even see what God's doing. Today, there are key points of theology, I know. Dispensationalism, covenant theology, limited atonement, and on and on it goes. And we'll stand till a death on those, and we don't even see what God's doing. These have been issues down through the ages, folks. But the very people you appreciate gave their lives, and they made a dent because they also recognized what God was doing. Everything's wrong with everybody else but you. We even have situations where people are wanting people behind the scenes. I'm not naive. Watch out for this one. Watch out for that one. And you don't see what God's doing. 
Well, you don't think God sees that. Is that godliness? Is that walking after the things of God? Do we have the interest in recognizing? That's just not just a challenge to us. It's Christianity today. But yes, it's to me. Yes, it's to you. Yes, it's to the church. It's to all of us. It's very possible to be so busy and so involved in doing these things and having bitterness and grief in our hearts and talking behind the scenes, and we don't see what God's doing. Give me some examples, Pastor Dan. Okay, I'm going to do that. I had to ask myself that question because I know you wouldn't or ask that of me. Do you see unsaved when they come into this church? Last week, we had several people that visited. The week before, several people had visited. I talked to a couple of them. How many of you even knew they were here? Are you watching what God's doing, bringing people in? New people. That's why I mentioned Paula. She's been coming a year, and the majority of you don't even know who she is. By the way, there's many of you that are laboring, faithfully laboring, Wherever God applies it, let him apply. But do we see what God's doing? Do we recognize somebody new coming in? Do we see how God has started works through this ministry? Still sending people forth? Do you see? Oh, yes, in the school, has there been problems? Sure there has. Do you see what God has produced? Have you watched what God has been doing? Oh, you got tunnel vision. Are you watching how God is changing believers' lives? Are you recognizing, are you excited about the things of God right now and watching God as people's lives are growing right here, as your life is growing right here, as young people's lives are growing right here? Do you see what God is doing? Or is all your time spent on what he's not doing? When is the last time you visited somebody sick? When is the last time you spent the time getting to know the new people who have come out? When's the last time you went to a Bible study? Not for your edification, but brought somebody along because you were excited to see what God's doing. This church grew on home Bible studies. Because God was working. By the way, God's I received, I'm going to share this with you. I received a most unusual phone call last Sunday. At least for me as a pastor. First of all, if you happen to be here last Sunday night, by the way, let me let me just let me finish these two issues. Last Sunday night. Somebody stood up and gave a testimony. This isn't to embarrass anybody, just a reality. Gave a testimony of how excited they were to watch what God was doing. I was sitting there in the pew. I hadn't come up to preach yet. I was bubbling over inside. I was ready to go. And when I got to the pulpit, I said, I just praise the Lord for that. And I hope it permeates the whole congregation. Because this person was bubbling over and so forth and so on about everything that God was doing. And I listened carefully. And this person had the discernment to see what God was doing. Not one negative thing came out of it. I got home and I got a very unusual phone call. And for a pastor, this is very unusual. 
Most of the time when the phone rings, it's either I got to go visit somebody, something's come up, or somebody needs prayer. Those are all good things. This was most unusual. I get a phone call, I get on the phone, this person was bubbling more than the person that was in the church that Sunday night. What happened? This person came over and said, Pastor Dan, just watching how God's using the word, used it in my life, used it in this person's life, and I sat on the other end of the phone and I'm thinking to myself, am I hearing this? This person was bubbling with enthusiasm. Why? Because this person was seeing what God was doing. That should be true with every person that professes Christ. Every one of us. We should be so excited. We should be so in tune with the Savior. We're coming to the communion table in two seconds. Two minutes maybe. We're coming to the communion table and our hearts, we take communion week after week after week and we walk out of here and many times Christians in this church, in churches in New England, in churches around the globe, the people are grumbling they don't see anything that God's doing. They're not inviting people out to Bible studies anymore. All they're doing, they're personal things behind the scene so they cover the bases. But they're the very ones when they get in a trial themselves. They won't call the pastor because they don't want him to know about it even though he finds out about it because they're embarrassed. We need to see. My whole point of this is these Pharisees and Sadducees, yes, the leaders, yes. I put myself in both categories here today. Yes, the leaders, it's very possible for us to get way off on tangents and our expectations to be wrong, and we're not seeing what God's doing in a young person's life, in an older person's life, and we're focusing in on the wrong place. But it's also true, putting me in that category, for every single believer to be looking at everything that we think should be just the way it should be, and we're not seeing what God is doing. Right in front of me are 200 people approximately in which God is doing marvelous things in your lives. Do you see it? Are you interested? They didn't see it, and they won't continue to see, see it. The only ones that are going to see it is the one that God is working in their life. Do we see, here it is again, what God is doing? That's a question for you today. As you're about to take communion, do you really see, yes, fine, you've come to Christ. Are you just in a hurry to get out of this church today? Are you concerned about anybody that's visited here today? Or just, ah, if I get to see him, I get to see him, I get to know him, I get to know him. How many people in this room do you not know? How many people are you praying for effectively? You say, well, i got my own little group. Yeah. How many people do you see and you're praising God as you go down your list of how God's answering prayer in their life, in your life? We're to be known by our love, not our critical spirit. We're to be known for the ways we build up, not for the ways we tear down. We're to be looking for the interest of others on those walls right there, not for our own interest. And we're to be looking out for the whole body as a whole, not for my personal pets. Don't get me wrong. If you know me, you need to stand for the truth of the word of God. But you also need to be actively involved in the body of Christ. And if you're not, I can tell you, you're not walking with the Lord the way you should, period. Nor am I. These people knew doctrine, but they had added to it. These people saw miracles, but they didn't see. 
these people saw and heard the claims of Christ but couldn't put it into life. Let that not be said of us. As we come to this communion service, one of the things that we're supposed to do is examine ourselves. That's what we should be doing. And I trust as we close at the communion service that God will do that starting with me. That every one of us will examine who is Christ? What has he done? Where am I honestly with Christ? Where am I in my walk? Do I see what God's doing honestly? He does. Do I really see what God's doing among us? Or do I see what's wrong? Do I see what God's doing among my family? Or do I see what God's, what's wrong? Do I see what God's doing in bringing in unbelievers? Do I see what God's doing in starting other works? Do I see what God's doing or do I only have tunnel vision on what I want to see? Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father in God, we come get ready for the communion service. These Pharisees missed the boat. There were many, as we will see going through this book, who will witness the miracles of Christ, who will hear the claims of Christ, who will be fed with food by Christ, who will know all the answers and will spend eternity in hell. There will be others who will turn away because things are too tough and won't see what Christ was doing. Let that not be said of us. Father, I thank you and praise you for salvation. Thank you and praise you for this congregation. Thank you and praise you that we do have people that look up, go out of their way to look for new people, look for unsaved, invite them out, look for what God is doing. And even though we are weak, get involved. Father, I pray that you'd help every one of us to examine ourselves because it is you that we stand responsible to. We can't hide from you. Day will come in which you'll strip it all away. Life goes on. We get older. We make a lot of claims, but a lot is wood, hay, and stubble. Help our Father our lives to mean something for Christ. Help us to live for your honor and glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.